Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7 when you get a chance. Luke 7 in your Bible, somewhere towards the middle. We're going to pick up our text today in verse 36. As you're getting there, I think it's fitting uh, on Memorial Day to think about and talk about Jesus, to remember him, what he has done, past tense, and is currently doing uh, in our midst today. So um, we're continuing our series out of the Gospel of Luke this morning. Now, um, a gospel in the Bible is uh, a biography. Okay, there's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them are named after, after their author. Us Christians, we tend to be very original when we name things, right? That was supposed to be funny. Come on. <laughs> um, so Luke writes his biography of Jesus from his own perspective. And granted, every of the uh, Gospels all tell the same story about Jesus. However, they all look at it or come at it from a different vantage point. And so for the last couple months, we've been studying Luke's version of Jesus's story. And today we are picking up the text right after a story from last week. Now, if you were here last week, you know that um, the story went a little bit like this. There was a guy, his name was John the Baptist. He was a little bit more than a guy. He was Jesus's cousin, and um, he was tasked with preparing the world for the coming of Jesus. And uh, at the very end of the story, remember that John begins to doubt and question, is Jesus really the Savior sent from God to humanity? And so he begins to wonder and question, and Jesus is not daunted by his questions or his doubts. He challenges everyone to bring their doubts and their questions to him and engage him to find out who he really is. And so our story today, as if this was put together with some sort of order in mind, our story starts with a man who is doing that exact thing, who decides, okay, if Jesus is asking me to bring my doubts and my questions to him, to engage with him, then I'm going to invite him over for dinner and find out if this guy really is who he says he is. So let's jump into the text. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can put your hand up. And we have some ushers in the back who would love to connect you with one. Um, just go ahead and throw your hand up. If not, uh, it's going to appear on the screen or just read along with me. Verse 36, Luke chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Okay, so the Pharisee is the guy who's questioning Jesus. Who is this guy? Um, what is his deal? Okay, and so right off the bat, we're one verse in, and we can already see about three different things. One is that this Pharisee tends to be um, more of a moderate Pharisee. Okay, on the scale of Pharisee, there is the extreme right-wing, right, uh, conservative, anti-Jesus Pharisees that we read about in the Gospels. And then there's those who kind of sit in the middle, who are on the fence, who are, who are questioning and wondering, maybe this Jesus guy can actually be sent from God. And so a Pharisee is a religious leader in the first century, a Jewish religious 
leader in the first century. They would be like the celebrities of the day. Think the Justin Biebs. And, um, you know, they would be what people wanted to be like. Maybe you don't want to be like the Biebs, but some younger folks do. Um, They would be like the Billy Grahams of the day. Maybe you want to be more like Billy Graham. Or um, they would be the celebrities. People wanted to be more like the Pharisees. And so this guy of a prominent stature within society invites Jesus over to dinner. Now, in the first century, tables were low. Contrary to Mel Gibson's belief in the passion, tables weren't up here and Jesus didn't invent it. Uh, The table was down here. And you don't get that joke because you've never seen the movie. Um, But (laughs) whatever. Um, The table is low and Jesus is... um, laying on his side. Now, I'm not going to get on my side for you, but perhaps, (laughs) good, yeah, thank you. Perhaps he's laying, leaning on one arm, or he's laying on his forearm, or maybe he's like a Swedish model and (laughs) laying there on his elbow. I don't know, but he's reclining, and that's important because he's eating at the table, conversing with the Pharisee, okay, and his feet are off towards one end, Everything is going as planned. If you read the previous chapters, you find out that Jesus is a pretty popular guy. What he has been doing in the surrounding towns and villages have caused people to want to come see him. And so imagine the scene. Jesus reclining at a table, a low table, conversing with the Pharisee, and the town filling up this house Homes like this, they would leave the doors open when a guest like Jesus would come. Because in an honor and shame society like the first century and like uh, the Middle East in, in the Judea- and, and Judaism in this period of time, um, if you treated your guests well, honor would come to your house. And if you treated them poorly, shame would come on your home. That's how it worked. And if you had someone that was um, famous come into your home, you would leave the door open so everyone could see that you were the one inviting the famous person over, okay? You would take credit for that, and it would bring honor on your home. And so the whole town is piled into this tiny little house. Everyone is conversing to some extent. Things seem to be going according to plan, and the Pharisee is trying to figure out, who is this Jesus guy? And then she comes in the door. The text goes on, says, a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So the party is going well. This woman had a reputation, and she comes through the door and crashes the party, for lack of a better term. Because the door was open, she would have been somewhat invited to the party, but only invited to stay on the outside of the home, or maybe, just maybe get through the door so she could hear a little bit. But to actually go up and touch the guest in the house of a Pharisee, That was a big no-no. And not only does she come in the house, but she comes in the house completely broken. How many of you have ever cried? 
thank you for the hands. Yeah, all these guys are like, no, I've never cried. <laughs> Whatever. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> have you ever cried so much that you could take the dirt and the grime and the gravel off of somebody's dirty feet? That's a lot of tear. Am I right? That's like a bucket, right? She is broken, sobbing, enough to wet Jesus' dirty, crusty feet, and then she lets her hair down. This is another big (laughs) no-no. There's only one type of woman in the first century who let her hair down. Do you know what type of woman that was? Yeah. Prostitute. Women were not allowed to let their hair down in the first century unless they were in the privacy of their own home in their bedroom with their husband. Ladies, that means a lot less time doing your hair in the morning. (laughs) Every day, they would wear their hair up in public. It was a sign of purity. Your hair down in public was not. It was a sign that you were impure So the text doesn't actually say what the woman and her sinful life was. However, her actions start to lend some credence to what she could have been up to. Most people agree this woman, her sinful life, she was a prostitute. So she breaks into the party, broken, sobbing, weeping. She takes her hair down in public. Big no-no, okay? Not only is Jesus' feet wet, but now her hair has mud and dirt and grime in it. That's disgusting. (laughs) I wouldn't want to do that, but she does that. And remember, Jesus' feet are on the outside of the table, so she isn't drawing a ton of attention to herself. She's way over here, and and Jesus and the Pharisee are conversing kind of over here. However, I'm imagining this was a spectacle that drew lots of attention Everyone knew who she was. She had a reputation. This was the woman who slept with your best friend's husband and the marriage is to smithereens. This was the woman that you would warn your sons to not go near her house. This was the woman who was, in the lack of a better term, gross in the eyes of the men and the women in the town. She comes She's at Jesus' feet. I think everyone in the house would have been staring. (laughs) You could probably hear a pin drop. And then she does something even crazier. She pulls out this alabaster jar now uh, of perfume. Now, in the first century, most of the time, um, nard was kept in an alabaster jar. And that sounds funny, but nard was a very expensive perfume. In fact, it probably cost upwards of a quarter of someone's yearly salary. It's a lot of money. Now, what was her business? How did she pay for the perfume? Yeah. The perfume that she's anointing Jesus' feet with came from some pretty shady means. Reminds me of, there's a church in the east side, southeast Portland, um, where uh, they opened up a, um, a church in a hotel or a motel in southeast that was famous for its meth use. 
the church is actually called Eastside Foursquare Church. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. This guy named Eric Baume, he started this. He had this vision for it. And uh, the thing was going really well. It's an amazing story. You should look it up and, and, and learn about this church because they're doing incredible things. However, the story that knocked me off my seat, I was a Bible college student, and it was a day in chapel. I skipped chapel all the time because I didn't like chapel. Um, <laughs> and, uh, go figure. Um, and uh, he was sharing from his heart, and I was kind of tuning him out. And then all of a sudden, he got my attention because he said to a bunch of Bible college students, a bunch of students that were studying scripture every day, this is what he said, I had a prostitute walk up to me and she said that she was so moved by the teaching about giving that she wants to know if she can tithe her 10% of her income. He looked at all of us Bible college students and he said, you find that in your theology textbooks, <laughs> right? And it got my attention. This woman isn't doing something much different than that. She is giving out of what she has and how she earned it was shady at best. Now, the tension exists in the story. No one has said a word <laughs> We've read quite a bit of action. I'm sure that the weeping, the sobbing, the kissing of the feet, the anointing of the feet didn't happen in a microsecond. That probably took a few minutes, if not 10 or 15. And the text is quiet about everyone. No one said anything, so there's tension. You could cut it with a knife. And the first thing that Luke tells us in verse 39 is this. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So, the Pharisee started with an agenda in mind. He had Jesus over for dinner to see if he was who he said he was, right? Well, at this point, after seeing Jesus correspond with this woman, whom he calls this, this kind of woman, the sinner, right? This is the Pharisee's language. After watching Jesus relate to her, he decides that there is no way Jesus could have been sent by God. There's no way he could be a prophet of God because this woman is so filthy and so dirty that no one sent from God would relate to her. That's what he comes to the conclusion. But he doesn't say it, he thinks it. And I love how Jesus responds. It says in verse 40, Jesus answered him. Now, I don't read Simon raising a question. I don't read him saying much. He's thinking this, and Jesus responds to him. And he says this, Simon, he calls him by name. I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, Simon said. Now, Crucial to get what just happened here. Simon just gave Jesus a blow, a low one too. Before, he thought perhaps Jesus was a prophet sent from God. And now, he's come to the conclusion that he's not. In fact, he's come to the conclusion that he's just a teacher now. No longer is he a prophet in the line of prophets from old. Now he is just a teacher. So he says to him, okay, teacher, what do you want to say to me? And Jesus tells him a story. Verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. 
One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? So here's the story or the parable that Jesus tells. Two people owe two different sums of money. Okay, that's clear. A denarii is um, the average wage for one day of work. Okay, so we have someone who owes 500 days of work and we have someone who owes 50 days of work. They both owe a creditor two different sums of money. However, neither of them can pay the creditor back. So what happens? The creditor eats the debt. That's the story. Okay, this would be like you walking into um, the bank. Your student loan is due and you don't have the money to pay it, okay? And they write the check, and they say, forget it, we're gonna take care of it. Or you fill in the blank, the credit card bill for thousands of dollars, or the utility bill, or whatever. You do not have the means to pay it. And so instead of collecting what you don't have, they eat the debt as the company, or as the creditor, you name it, you fill in the blank. That's a story. Now Jesus asks a question that's simple. We should all get it. Which one would love him more? Which one would love the creditor more? The one who owed more money or the one who owed less? More. Thank you. Scholars, everyone in the building, well done. Yes, exactly. Jesus makes a point that's fairly obvious. However, as he's telling this story, I think Simon is starting to pick up on who he is in the story. And hopefully we're picking up who we might be as well. Simon replied in verse 43, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. It's ironic because this is the first judgment that Simon has made that's been correct, (laughs) right? He's judged the woman that she's too filthy, too dirty for God to ever love her. He's judged Jesus that he couldn't be sent from God because... God doesn't deal with dirty people, okay? He's judged God as well, right? That God is too holy and too righteous to ever deal with anyone unless they were holy and righteous in their own eyes. And he's elevated himself in the story to be the one who can say these things about other people, who can make these judgments. And Jesus um, tells him, finally, he's right about something, (laughs) He's right that the one who would love more is the one who has been forgiven more. More on that in a minute. Jesus goes on. Verse 44. He says, Then Jesus turned towards the woman, okay? And he said to Simon, so now he's looking at the woman. Remember, she's at his feet still. My guess is she hasn't stopped doing what she was doing, okay? She wasn't really worried about what anybody thought in the beginning, so she's probably in the exact same place. And he turns and looks at her, and then he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But 
Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So another bit of history, are we following, we're good, everyone? Okay, another bit of history that's important is in the first century, any time that you invited a guest over, it was custom to wash their feet when they walked through the door, okay? Everybody wore probably some variation of sandals, which meant that they walked on dirt feet and sandals equals dirty feet, okay? And people don't necessarily like people walking around with dirty feet in their home, and it was a gesture of kindness to wash their feet. And so almost any party you went to or any house you were welcomed into, there would be someone at the door washing your feet. Jesus says that no one welcomed him into Simon's home. He says, I was at your house, Simon, but you did not offer me any water for my feet. Also, customary to greet a guest with a kiss when they walked through the door. Think French, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? That kind of greeting with a kiss. It was customary, but Jesus points out that yet again, Simon did not greet him with a kiss. But the woman didn't stop kissing him until she came through the home. And then he says, you didn't give me olive oil for my head. Olive oil is cheap. Still is today, and it was back then. It doesn't cost much to provide a little oil for someone's head. Okay, um, Oil uh, on somebody's head was, a, a oil, olive oil was a cleansing agent at the time. And so this was another, uh, resemb- like another symbolic thing of you're under my covering, you're clean, I'm welcoming you into the home. And Jesus says, you didn't even offer me cheap oil, but the woman offered me this perfume that was costly. So what he does here is he explains the actions of the woman and the actions of the Pharisee, and then he talks about the motivations behind each of those actions. And he sums up the parable, the teaching, by bringing it back to home and saying that the one who loves much, like the one in the story, has been forgiven much. The one who loves little has been forgiven little And Simon now knows who Jesus thinks he is. And the woman now knows who Jesus thinks she is. And so then Jesus does something that's audacious. He forgives sins. Now, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us now, but 2,000 years ago, there was only one who could forgive sins. God could only forgive sin. If any human being claimed to forgive sin, they were looked at as a heretic, as a blasphemer, as someone who was speaking the opposite or false of who God is or what God is. So what Jesus is doing here is a big deal. Jesus is claiming ultimate authority on the same level as God. He's claiming he is God, God in the flesh there, and he has the authority to forgive sins. This obviously causes an uproar because the next verse says this. Uh, Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests, verse 49, begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Okay, this is an outrage. How can this guy do this? This is insane. And Jesus is undaunted by them. His response, 
He doesn't even say a word to the crowds who are questioning him. What he says is to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And the story ends. Now, as is typical, whenever we gather together like this, we read a story and we, we really ask ourselves the question, okay, what was it like for these people experiencing it? And now what do we do today with this story? So every time in a talk just like this, we get to this spot where we, we talk about, okay, how do I live now according to what I just learned or read? And uh, over the last week, I've been really thinking about this end process, this process in telling you, okay, this is the story. We all get it. We all tracked for the last 20 minutes or whatever. But now what do you do? And I came to this realization again that I think that the things that we do, our actions, are motivated by how we think and what we believe. Nine times out of 10, you do what you do in life because there is a worldview that you hold, something that you believe that motivates you to do it. Right? Many of us? Yes? Okay. Thank you for the head nods. Yes. Many of us are in that same place, okay? So, so what we think and what we believe moves us into action. And so today, I decided let's think about some, some responses we can have to this text, both physically in action and how we think and what we believe, because if that changes, if that shifts, then what we do will shift also, okay? So first, kind of a takeaway, a chunk from this story that, um, that really spoke to me. Don't count anyone out. Jesus did not count the woman out, but everyone else did. She was too dirty, too far gone. She's been used and abused, and she is the farthest away, farthest away from what God would ever want to seek after. Last night, I couldn't sleep, and so... I decided, uh, I mean, might as well make most of the time. I, uh, I opened up the Gospel of Luke starting in page one and decided, hey, I'm just going to keep reading it until I fall asleep. And so I read and I read and I read, and I was blown away at the kind of people that Jesus went to over and over and over again. You would think that he would go after all the time the Pharisee, right? The religious leader, the one with the religious pedigree and the Bible college education. And he did love those people and he did speak to them constantly. But it wasn't exclusive to only those people. Jesus went after and loved on prostitutes like the one in this story. Or how about later on in chapter 9 when Jesus, he goes to a guy who has been counted out. Then his name isn't even mentioned. We just know him by the legion of demons that was in this guy. His family, his friends, they didn't know what to do with him. So they chained him up and took him to some obscure graveyard out in the middle of nowhere and just waited for him to die. You know the story. Jesus shows up on the scene, heals the man, 
And everyone is afraid because this guy's in his right mind now. And he, this, this guy who was once possessed by demons, thousands of them, he wants to hang out with Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He tells him to go out and change the world. Go tell everybody about what I've done. Jesus didn't count him out. Did you know that around 13 books in the New Testament were authored by a murderer? Someone who murdered Christians. Jesus did not count him out. Did you know that one of the 12 disciples, his name was Simon, he was known as the zealot. Do any of you know what a zealot is? It's the equivalent of a modern-day terrorist. Their nicknames were daggermen. They kept daggers in their back, waiting for a revolution where the Jewish people would overthrow the Romans and they would pull the dagger out and they would stab the nearest Roman. Simon the zealot, Jesus calls to be his disciple. Jesus does not count anyone out. Do you? The Pharisee did. What scares me the most whenever I read the Gospels is that I can identify with the Pharisees often way more than anyone else. I grew up in church. I know the Bible. I have it memorized. But when I face people like this woman, I'm terrified. I treat them as if I'm pushing them farther away from God instead of like Jesus who brings them closer. You know, I was working at a church for about a year and a half. Um, I was uh, started a college ministry there. I was teaching the Bible every single week. I thought I had a great grasp on what the gospel was. I thought I had a great idea who Jesus was. And then all of a sudden, I had this urge that I needed to step down from my position, work in this restaurant in Portland someplace, and be a part of a church plant in downtown Portland. And so I did that. I stepped away from my position. I got a job in a restaurant where I was serving food to people on a regular basis. I guess that's what you do in a restaurant. Um, (laughs) And uh, I came quickly into contact with people like the woman in this story. For example... I had a manager, let's say his name is Ben, okay? Now, Ben, he was a practicing homosexual, although you probably wouldn't ever notice it because he didn't seem like what I thought fit the bill. I'm from Gresham. I know everything, right, out in Gresham. (laughs) You're laughing, but uh, Gresham and Hillsborough are like the same thing, so... Um, No, I thought I knew everything. I thought I knew what the world was. I thought I understood what people looked like that were like that. He didn't fit the bill. In fact, he was from Texas, grew up in a Southern Baptist church, but was a practicing homosexual. And on the weekends, he would cross-dress and run around downtown Portland and do whatever he did every single weekend. I saw him multiple times. And at one point, he asked me to share the gospel with him. And I, I was a guy who, I taught the Bible every week for like a year and a half. I couldn't do it. I didn't know how to talk to this guy. I didn't know how to relate to him. And I realized after reading all of this that I look more like the Pharisee than I do Jesus in this story. Perhaps you are the one who feels like you are too far gone. The mistakes you've made in your past, the things that you have done, You walked through the door this morning, head hang low, just feeling like everyone here was judging you. You're not too far gone. If Jesus came for women like this, he came for you too. Leads me to the next point. Jesus paid your debt. 
Now, um, I have to admit that that point is cheesy, in my opinion. I use the lingo for a reason, though, and that's because I want you to understand who the creditor is in Jesus' parable. It's Jesus. He is the one who ate your debt. I also want you to understand that in the story, neither party could pay back what they owed the creditor. Irregardless if you owed 500 days of work or 50 days of work, neither of them had the means to pay the debt. Which means no matter what, if there's someone in this room who has committed some heinous act, and then there's another person in this room who has lived a pretty milk toast life, neither of them could have paid the debt. Neither of them could. The difference in this story isn't that this woman shows up and does all these great actions, and then at the end of that, Jesus forgives her. No, the woman is forgiven before she enters the picture. The text says a woman who had, past tense, lived a sinful life. Her actions are motivated from a forgiven state. She realized the debt that was wiped off and cleaned for her. The Pharisee hasn't. He owes 50 still. If the creditor doesn't eat his debt, he's doomed. But he doesn't see it. And so the connection in this story between forgiveness and love is this. When you realize how much your forgiveness costs you, it will change how you live your life drastically. And you should read yourself into this story. I read myself into this story. Which one am I? Am I the one who loves little like the Pharisee? Or am I the one who loves great like the woman? Interesting that a prostitute in this story would become a role model. Every single one of you, whenever you look at someone, this is one of the reasons why we count people out. We think that we owe less than someone else. Or this person is better than this person or better off. Jesus would have had to die for either the milk toast or the heinous person. Either way. Level playing field, folks. Next point. Now these are headier, okay? I use big words. <laughs> And they're technical, theological language. But I want to put them in simple terms for all of us. With forgiveness comes transformation. Okay? This is reinforcing what I've already said. The woman has already been forgiven. And now she's living as if that were true. Have you ever used the term or heard the term, I am just a sinner saved by grace? There's one problem with that. Does anyone know? Nowhere in the New Testament is anyone who has been saved by Jesus called a sinner. Nowhere. And that is an identity statement. You are saying that I am just a lowly sinner, but I was saved by grace. No, this is the truth. You were a sinner, but you have been saved by grace if you are in Jesus, which means this. Your identity is not in your past. Your identity is not in the things that you have done, good or bad. 
Your identity is strictly in Jesus. If you are saved by him, by faith in him and what he has done, you have a new identity. And you know what the New Testament uses for you? It doesn't use sinner. It uses son or daughter of God, redeemed child of God, holy one, pure one, a holy nation, a dwelling place of God. These are the names that the New Testament uses for you over and over and over again. You have been forgiven and then transformed. For us, we have to ask the question, what is delaying the transformation process, right? Jesus transforms everyone he comes in contact with, but we have a role to play in it. We resist that transformation because, as Jesus says, it's like taking up your own personal cross and dying to yourself. It's tough work. But Jesus' way, this transformation, is really you and I becoming who we were meant to be in the very beginning. Before sin enters the picture and before we're scarred and broken and bent away from what God has for us, okay, we were made the way in which God had intended us to live. And the point of this transformation, the point of the Bible's story, is to bring us back to that place in which we were right and whole. And transformation isn't about just changing your behavior. It's about becoming who God has made you to be. So we learn. That's what we're doing here. We, we try to change the way and adapt the way we think. We love. Like the woman, we're extravagant in our love for people. We get down on our knees and we serve people. We're transformed and changed. Our values are different. No longer do we seek after and long after the things that go away at the end of the day. We long after things that have value eternally, love and faith and hope. We treat people like they were made in God's image, irregardless if they're our enemy or not. That is what a transformed person lives like. You have been forgiven Subsequently, now you are becoming transformed into the person of Jesus. And with that transformation, your new identity, lastly, lastly, (laughs) anything? No, okay. (laughs) That was like totally killed the moment right there. You guys are awesome. Uh, Lastly, with transformation comes a mission. Notice that every single one of those two far gone people that Jesus comes encounters with, you know what he does with them? He uses them to change the world. How crazy is that? The prostitute, the terrorist, you name it. They are called to change the world. Paul is a great example. The guy I said who was a murderer of Christians who wrote 13 books in the New Testament. He was transformed and he changed the world. This is the God. That cycle is the gospel. (laughs) That cycle that you see is the gospel. Forgiveness offered by faith in Jesus, which leads to a transformed life. And now go do something with it. Go get involved in your community. Go serve. Go after that job that seems 
weird for you. That, that seems like, uh, I can't get that, but I feel maybe God is calling me to do that. And it's an opportunity to, to, to in, embody the gospel for people, to share the gospel with them, to love them. Start that life group. Get involved with kids. Go serve in the community. Do something. Figure out what that is. I don't know what each and every one of your individual specific mission and vision for your life is. But take time to pray and seek God and find what that is because if you're sitting on the sidelines, you're missing the life that's truly life that Jesus has to offer.